Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Real people, real stories, real hope. And I happen to be your humble host. My name is Sean Davis, and joining me as always, my hostess with the mostest, my hostess in life, my co-parent partner, my woman of my dreams. My everything. My everything. <laughs> Her name is... Just Jen. And you're along with us as we keep the Hope Train moving on down the tracks. Choo-choo! It has been a minute since the Hope Train was moving on down the tracks, but I, I am here to, number one, say... That is no longer going to be the case. We are going to keep that consistency going. We're going to keep the hope train of moving on down the tracks with more shows. Mm-hmm. We're just going to commit to one new show a week. How does that sound, Jen? I think I can commit to that. You can, right? Yeah. The everyday thing was a little hard. How about the two, three days? The two, three in a day days. I honestly think you're still going to have me do that. What? <laughs> yeah, because I know you. What? You, you'll you say, okay, just one day, but there'll be like 10 shows in one day. <laughs> and then I'll say, that's a lot of shows. And you said, you'll say, it's just one day. You know what I call that? What? Efficiency. That's I, efficient. I'm on to you. What? Yep. You don't know nothing. Even though we've been together for 32 <laughs> years, you don't know nothing. I know a lot a li- no, I know <laughs> a little about a lot. Yes, you do. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I love you. Yes, so, I like the cliff notes of life. You do. I do. You cut to the chase. I do. You're the worst joke teller. I'm the best joke teller. Well, on this show you are, but like when you're trying to explain, you'll cut to the punchline right away. You steal the story. Because I, I like the funny first. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you like to eat cupcakes before dinner. I eat the cupcake. I eat the frosting first. Yes. Yeah. You you go frosting first, then mm-hmm. cake? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I love Oreos, but I've never been a guy to take the, the, the cream out of the middle. Oh, I would so do that if I liked Oreos. You know, like just eat that first. I watch first. people and twist them and then like use their teeth and scrape the, the cream off, but I don't care for Oreos, so I'm, mm. not, I'm not doing that. Well, I think Oreos are crack. Do you want to know what's good, though? What? was really, really good. What? And I hope everybody has one of these in their town is the new Crumble Cookie. The what? The Crumble Cookie Place. Oh, that's a place. That's a store. It's a place. It's oh. it's an experience. You know. Don't okay. you know me nothing. Well, I, I was just going to say, like I, when, I, when I think about a dessert, mm-hmm. when I think about something that I want to have that's sweet. Yeah. I don't usually think of a cookie. I think of Oreos, but I don't think of a normal cookie. Oreos are gross. They're, I think of they're donuts. Processed, yuck. Well, I understand that, but like, I like the taste of them. Yeah, but well. I guess my point is that I I'm not as big of a oh my gosh I want to have a cookie kind of guy. Oh my gosh, give me a sugar cookie with frosting on the top. I'll take sprinkles too. I know that's your favorite. But a big, huge cookie like Cookie Connection has a really good sugar cookies, but crumble cookie. Here in Rockland, amazing. Well, maybe there's a crumble cookie coming near oh, to whoever's your, listening. Your teeth just like go through the frosting and hit that sugar cookie, and it's just amazing. Ask wow. Brayden. Brayden thought the same, the same wow, thing. Wow, that was quite the description. I know. I was visualizing well, having it, one. Okay, so if you, put, if you put the best cookie that you've ever tasted on the counter or mm-hmm. on a table mm-hmm. and then right next to it you put a maple frosted donut and or a apple fritter donut 
I'm going to the donuts all the time. Not me. hundred percent. Not me. When I think of a cheat day, when I'm, you know, working out and I have like that one treat at the end of the week, it's always a sugar cookie well, with good, frosting. Good to know. Have frosting. And, well, just on that same line, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're talking about food, which gives people hope. Yeah. I think that's a fun topic. But down in Mexico, you found a new cookie place. I found a new bakery where people come all from all over just to go to this little tiny bakery. Come from two, three hours away. Yes. To come to this little bakery in San Jose del Cabo. They came for guava pastries. I came <sighs> for the sugar cookies with frosting. I know. And then like all of a sudden you didn't have any sugar cookies they, anymore. They they said, girl, you have a problem. We're cutting you off and we are no longer giving these cookies this is, to you. This is for your benefit. Yes. We're, 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 we're doing we're, this we're, for you. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to some funny. How about we sell, tell some jokes before we get into our interview? I got a fascinating interview I'm going to share with you today. Okay. That was a very fast sentence. I understand. Like, it jumbled. We have to move on. I know, but that was weird. What? It was like... Did I, I go was, too fast for you? It was a little fast. I was tracking you. Okay, so we got to move on. <laughs> yeah. Did I sound like an auctioneer? A little bit? A little bit. Yeah. Okay, we got an interview coming up. We got uh, jokes to tell. We got to move on right now. Yeah, that's too much. Well, I've been a little rusty, so give me a break. Slow down. <laughs> Slow it down. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's you are good to remind me of that. Thank you very <laughs> much. Right. All right, you got a joke to share? I have a joke. Is it a funny one? It's a funny food joke. Okay, how, how did I guess it was going to be a food joke? Because I only tell food jokes. Okay, let's make some people laugh. What's your joke? <gasps> okay, what are twins' favorite fruit? You're never going to get it. Why you got to say that? That's not the answer. Oh, that's not part of the joke? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in my that was my inside voice speaking out it came out <laughs> it your inside voice came out <laughs> like it always does yep uh, I forgot the question oh you did yeah what is the question what are <laughs> twins favorite fruit what are twins favorite fruit uh well I understand that you keep telling me I'm never gonna get it bananas because they're so similar you're never gonna get it what I don't even know if anyone on the planet has the answer to this. Well, I don't think this is going to be funny then. Peas. <laughs> Peas are a fruit? Right? See? No, they're they not. Are, are they? They're a fruit. What? That's what I'm saying. How can they be fruit? That's why I knew nobody would get it. <laughs> I like my fake laugh. <laughs> oh, and the applause. That's the applause for you. I'm here for, for the that applause. Joke. Yes. Peas are not fruit. Peas are a fruit. What? Yes. Who said? The people. God. God said peas are a fruit. Yes. God I made peas. I don't know where that says that in I, the Bible. I promise you. I no. promise you. That's why I knew nobody. Peas are get a it. vegetable. They're not. What are they? They're not a fruit. They're a fruit. How could it be a fruit? Well, I don't know. Tomatoes are fruits. Oh, this is making my head hurt. <laughs> All right, we got to move on. I got to tell my joke. You ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Okay. What do you call a computer that sings? A computer that sings. Yeah, what do you call a computer that sings? Um, a Samsung? <laughs> no, that's not the right answer. You call a computer that sings Adele. <laughs> That's funny. That was a good one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was cute. I thought so, too. I don't know who won that joke off, but here's who I know absolutely won. Yeah. Our listeners. Because <laughs> they had two funny jokes. 
That's right. We both laughed. All right. So uh, I want to get to an interview that we're going to do. I've got Mr. Jason Bresca Mm -hmm. coming on the line. And I met him in a clubhouse room and reached out to him after. I thought what he had shared and what he had said was profound. And so I got him to commit to coming on to our Hope Radio podcast. And um, his story is a an incredible story. Um, he was abused sexually as a young boy, mm-hmm. but he goes on to you know, reveal who his abuser was, who had helped him in that abuse. And now as, you know, almost a, uh, I think he's a little over 50 Mm -hmm. year old man, he is going after some justice right now. He's going to hold some people accountable for what happened to him. So I'm excited to to listen to his story because it is a a story of hope because he was given a whole bunch of cards that could have made him easily excuse going down the wrong mm-hmm. path in life and he's chosen not to do that and i think that's a story of hope so i want to call him get him online what do you think i think we should call him all right let's do it right now here we go all right i am excited and happy to share the mic with mr jason bresca jason welcome to the hope radio podcast how are you I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on. What a great program. Hey, uh, you are most welcome, and thank you for joining our program to share more about your story and uh, foster hope in others. But before we jump into the actual interview, why don't you share, for the benefit of our listeners, where do you live? You know, where do you call home? You're a family man. You got kids, wife, etc. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, I live in uh, Brooklyn, New York. I am 50 years old. I'm married. My incredible, patient, loving wife, Rebecca. I have three children. My daughter, Ashley, she's 32, married with two children. She lives in Texas. My son, William, he's 24. He's a college senior with the UCF in Florida. And my youngest, Nathaniel, who is just one of the most amazing people I've ever been around in my life. He's, he, he's what grounds me every day. Isn't it amazing how much your kids can teach you about life? I sit there. I oh marvel at that it's, myself. It's so crazy. You know, loving. As I was growing up, you know, when I was 20, I thought I knew everything. And now that I'm 50, I know nothing. And I learned from them every single day. It's like I have this, this cell phone, right? Like our cell phones have more technology in our cell phones in our hands than the first ship that went to the moon. And I don't even know what I'm doing on this thing. And if I need anything, I have to go on the other side of the house with my 15-year-old child who could literally build a space shuttle. He teaches me something every day. But the thing he teaches me the most is humility. Oh, my gosh. So, I could yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, like I've, I've marveled at what lessons I've learned from my children just in terms of how they attack life and how they attack challenges and who they are and their integrity level. I mean, I, I look at them and they're so much further ahead than I was when I was their age. I was just like, man, this is just really, really cool. What a blessing. That's the blessing of being a parent is when you can see life differently through the eyes of your children. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if every parent could take a step back and try to look through their children's eyes, I think that would put a whole new perspective on your life. You know, and it's, it's funny, we're having this, we're beginning the show like this because, you know, I was talking to my oldest son yesterday and I came into the house and uh, my, my wife said, you okay? I'm like, you know, I just had the best conversation I've ever had with my son. And she looked at me, she goes, you look so peaceful. I'm like, yeah, it took 24 years for us to get there, but it was just a great conversation because he was, he was actually receptive to hear me. And I heard him. You know, it's one thing to listen, but it's another thing to hear somebody. And it, yes. was, it was so amazing to hear him, man. It was great. Yeah. I'm blessed to have all my children and, and my grandchildren. Well, you're one up on me on that lot on that line because uh, I don't I got no grandchildren yet, but I can't wait to spoil some grandchildren when we do, right, Jen? Like we're gonna be uh, uh, we're, 
We're, we've called ourselves already. We're not even grandparents yet, and we call ourselves. We already have names. You go ahead and share. Oh, do you? Yeah, I'm going to be Lolly, and Sean's going to be Pop. All right. Sean's so, going to be Pop. So. Lolly and Pop. pop. By the way. And we're always going to have suckers. Yeah, we're going to be Lollipop. And we're going to give all our grandkids suckers when they come and see us, so they always want to come and see us. We're bribing I love them. That. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, you know, my relationship with my daughter, um, it's funny how, you know, your your relationship, at least for me, my relationship with my daughter got so much stronger when she had children, you know, because she's the oldest out of my three. And she always, I, I guess she felt a little insecure because, you know, I have my son and my son's relationship with me is different than my relationship with my daughter because I did different things with them. And now that she has children of her own, she sees the world differently. She's a parent. And my grandchildren, they're my life, they're my love, they're my heart, they're my soul. I spoil them and I pump them full of sugar and I send them home. And it's just, it's just a beautiful relationship. It is so pure. You know, my granddaughter, Peyton, she just, she looks at me and, and I just can't tell her no. She just goes, she's just delightful. <laughs> she, she's just delight for me, man. It's just this amazing feeling. It's fantastic. The blessings you of know? parenthood and the blessings of being a grandparent, you know, Th- thank you. I, yeah, I, I, I can't wait. Now I'm even more excited than I was before. <laughs> and then, and then yeah. you said Peyton, you know, and we, one of our kids was going to be a Peyton if we'd had a girl, but Jen, we never had girls. Yeah. We actually, I, I tell you my, yeah, our, I'm sorry, Jen. our last child was going to be named Peyton. And so we have a bunch of blankets with the name Peyton all over it because they were gifts from friends and literally like <laughs> the minute he was born, we changed his name. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't find out whether he, we were going to have boys or girls. Yeah. We, we we wanted to wait and mm-hmm. see what happened. Yeah. And here we go, fourth boy. Here's the fourth boy. Like we shouldn't be surprised. That's awesome. You know, I um I actually try to bribe my daughter. I have a grandson and a granddaughter. And I bribe. I try to bribe her both times. You know, I said, "Hey, how about Jason? Jason? You know, I offered her a car both times, and she just she refused." That my grandson's Tristan. Joseph and Peyton Julie. And we were, so we were going to do a Tristan too. Yeah. That's so funny. Tristan was our first child's name originally. Yeah. And we changed that as well. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah she, she, yeah. she went with Tristan and she went with Peyton. And you know what? I went to either one, uh, either name, either child. They're both, they have such distinct personalities. They're just amazing kids. All what my kids and my grandkids are all individuals. And I'm just blessed. You know, my wife is just amazing. And um, every day I wake up, I'm, I'm grateful. I really am. Well, I know it hasn't always been that way because I've heard a little bit about your story, but I'm so happy to hear that's where you are now in life. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. This is a story of hope because there were points in your life where you did not feel blessed. Points in your life where you did not feel what you feel now and I think that that's what makes the feeling that you have now so sweet and so victorious is that you have been through what you've been through. So I'm going to let you unfold the story the way that you see fit. But um, where does your story of hope begin, Jason? Um, wow, I didn't learn. I didn't. I mean, I think I've always had hope because you know I'd have to go back all the way to my childhood. I mean, I was I grew up in abject poverty. You know, I was one of seven, the only boy, six sisters. My mother was mentally ill. And she, you know, even with her mental illness, she tried her best. I mean, you would open the fridge and there would be a block of uh, welfare cheese and a box of baking soda. And, you know, roaches and mice running around. 
And, you know, my oldest childhood memories of uh, my sister Stephanie, who's a year older than me, who is, well, my best friend in life. And we lived 10 minutes from each other. And we didn't always get along, of course, brother and sister. But, you know, she always has been and always will be my protector and my best friend. And my younger brother, Cliff. And uh, at four years old, my mother put me in foster care. And, you know, that wasn't an easy go. Were you the only one of your siblings that was put in foster care or were all of them put in foster care? No, with me and my younger brother, Cliff. And that was very rough in foster care. You know, that was, um, in foster care was, you know, it, it seemed like it was a, um, a business for the people. You know, there was a lot of us in there. A lot of bad things happened in there. And, you know, uh, I spent about two years there. How old were you? How old were you, Jason, when you went in? I was four. Mm. I was four years old. I came home. I remember it was like yesterday. And my mother got remarried. And my stepfather was Marty, who never really did much for me other than get me out of foster care, which kind of saved my life because I was going through a lot in foster care. You know, when you're a foster child, you're not a, you're not really their child. So they're getting a check to help to, to house you, but they're not they're not getting anything to love you. You know, and this is back in the seventies. And I spent two years there and my stepfather told my mother, he's like, I love you and I want to marry you, but you the only way I'll marry you is if you take your children out of foster care. And that saved my life. At least, you know, it saved my life up to that point. Yeah. So, so she took me out, and we lived in the Brighton Beach section of Brooklyn. And most people don't know Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach is the section of Brooklyn that's right next to Coney Island. Now, when you mention Brooklyn, you mention Coney Island. Everybody knows Coney Island because of the ride. You know, Coney Island's a ghetto, but so is Brighton Beach. And in that that time frame, you, you know, it was rampant drugs. Uh, desolate um, poverty you know burnt out buildings so you know back then you had two choices you know it was either drugs or sports and I had two sisters my sister Donna and my sister Stacy who were hardcore prostitute drug addicts and they would you know either get you know many times I would come home you know I'm a kid I'm six, seven years old running the streets just to eat, just to survive. I mean, we would break into stores as kids, six, seven, eight years old, uh, just to eat. And I would come home and one of my sisters would be in the bathroom, knotted out with a needle in their home. So drugs always scared me, but it was all around. And sports, you had the, the short front Y down the block. It was supposed to be like this beacon of hope, a beacon of light, you know? We couldn't afford it. We were broke. But there was a guy there. His name was Irvin Blitzkowski. He was the gym director. In order to be, uh, in order to play at the Y, I had to be a member uh, of the of the place. But what Blitz does, and that was his nickname, everybody called him Blitz. He would leave the side door open, so all the kids can come through the side and play basketball for free. It's kind of cool, when you know, he's letting all the kids in for free. Like you don't, you know, you're a kid. You don't think, you know, you just want to play ball. You want to be with your friends. 
Well, Butch really was, he was a pimp. He was really pimping these kids out to a pedophile that had been in that building since, since the early 70s. His name was Michael Blutrick. And, but I didn't know that. I just want to play basketball. I don't want to be near the drugs. I don't want to be in my house because there's always, you know, Don or Stacy would always come home. They'd, they'd come home high. They would fit, get in fist fights. Their boyfriend would be there and they'd get in fist fights with my stepfather. So there's chaos there. There's chaos on the street. So what do you do at now seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old? Stephanie's going to the Y. She's a cheerleader. She goes to the Y. All your friends are there. Or what friends you have, because all I had was one pair of jeans. And if they got ripped, my mother's like, that's all you got. You know, I can't tell you how many times my sneakers had holes in them and she'd put a newspaper on the bottom of them. Like, you see things like that in TV shows and stuff like that. That was my real life, man. Yeah. Like, legitimately, newspapers on the bottom of my shoes had holes in them because we couldn't afford new shoes. I think for a lot of people, they hear stories of that, you know, coming out of like the 20s or the 30s, the Great Depression, etc. But they're not thinking that that was something that was happening, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, 50 years, as an example. Uh, I want to go yeah. back to something that you had said. So, you, you you know, you painted a really good picture for us. So you got drug abuse, um, prostitution at home. You, you got abject mm-hmm. poverty. There's no way for you to actually really feel secure, safe you know, fulfilled, you're running the streets at six, seven, eight, nine, ten, however old you were. And really the only place that yeah. you could go for any type of interaction, community, support, friends, etc., to have fun. You know, kids want to have fun. You're a kid, you want to go have fun. And was and, and acceptance. And yes. acceptance. Because this is where everybody went. The entire neighborhood went to the shore from what? Everybody went there. And then you got, you got this guy that leads the side door open to the Y so more kids can come in unbeknownst to you because he's leave, leaving that. And, and some would, looking at the positive side of it, go, okay, he's just trying to make sure kids have an opportunity. But you didn't know that there's a predator in there, somebody that was using that opportunity, that inflow of kids to take advantage of them and um, – you know, basically prey on them. And, and that's what happened to you. Well, what happened was in that neighborhood, right? You heard of the boogeyman of Brighton beach. He was known like no matter where you were in that neighborhood, Sean, you heard of the boogeyman of Brighton beach, Michael Blutra. Like if, if Sean was out of line, we would say, Oh, Sean, your mom's going to send you to the boogeyman, but you never really saw him. It was like um, this mythical guy you heard of. Right? And they would say, oh, he's going to go to the boogeyman. Because I'm like eight years old, dude, and who thinks of the boogeyman? You know, and, but you, you would hear it. And he was this, he was the varsity basketball coach because that's why they had the JV team and they had the varsity. When I'm like nine years old, I'm not thinking of the varsity, which is 15, 16, 17. I'm thinking of my friends, my age group. So, yeah, you, you gravitate to the Y because that's where everybody went. That was really the only place that was kind of safe. You, you were supposed to feel safe there. You know, the, the, the shorefront Y is owned by the UJA, which is a multi-billion dollar corporation. You know, that, 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 that gets state and federal funding. That's the place where you're supposed to be able to send your kids and know that they're safe. You, you know what I mean? It's not yeah. in an area that's yeah. so, so desolate. I mean, literally, like, during that time period, man, there was nothing else there. I'm talking about nothing the only place neighborhood that you could go was the shorefront Y. 
And and the thing how by the time I got there in the early eighties, Shorefront knew of this situation with him. UJA knew of the situation with him and they still turned a blind eye because he was donating so much money. He was politically connected. His law partner was Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York right now. So when you have those type of connections, people turn the other way. People are afraid. Let me just preface this with this. When I grew up in Brighton Beach, it was mostly American. But in the early 80s, you know what happened, Sean? was a great influx, a, a wave of Russian immigrants came into Brighton and they made Brighton their home. So what happens then? What are, what are Russian immigrants the most afraid of? The police. Because think about the early 80s in Russia. Yeah. They're, they're afraid of the police. So when a pedophile is running rampant through your neighborhood, who's the last person you're going to call? The police. So this guy made it his breeding ground. He had he could pick and choose he wanted. Nobody's going to go to the police. And those who went to UJA, went to Shorefront, were ignored because nobody was going to go to the police. These organizations knew. So they here knew. So here you are trying to just grab onto some little bit of your childhood that feels mm-hmm. normal, secure, peer support, community, athleticism, etc. And unbeknownst to you, you're walking into a lion's den. 90%. Me and dozens, if not hundreds of other kids, absolutely. So how did how did you first meet the boogeyman? Like how did how did how did your world get turned upside down? Well, what had happened was, um, I will never lie and say I had basketball skills. <laughs> I was, but but you know what? They, they, they the grooming process was so fine tuned by the time I got there because by the time I got there, he was already on his second or third generation of kids. So Blitz, who ran the program, ran. Had had intramural leagues, had different leagues. He also had a, a, a team, the shorefront team. Like I said, the junior varsity team and the varsity team. So the way it worked was you started on JV, and even if you didn't make the JV, you got to be on the taxi squad. Now, mind you, I'm growing up in abject poverty. I have one pair of jeans. I have one pair of sneakers, and if they rip, oh well. So they put me on the taxi squad. But let me tell you something, Sean. I had so much, it gave me so much self esteem, so much pride that I was part of a team. I was part of something. For the first so time in your life, team. really? First time in my life, I had something to look forward to. I was part of something. Because I would go home, there'd be so much chaos, there'd be so much fighting. So Blitz comes to me one day. He says, Michael wants to speak to you. Now, I had seen Michael, I had never even spoken to him. And Michael was, Blue was a short, fat, roly poly guy. Um, I used to say to myself, that's the boogeyman? Like he was nothing. So you had, you had heard he, of him and connected that that was the guy before you'd had any type of interaction with him. Well, people would point out there's blue trick. Oh, got it. And, I, and I'd be like, that's him? Like, he's not an intimidating, he's not an opposing person physically. So Blitz said to me, Michael wants to talk to you in the Shorefront Library. And I got so scared. I remember freezing in my tracks. Like, oh, my God, what did I do? What did I do? And Blitz like, he just wants to talk to you. So I remember walking, and it was, I swear, Sean, I felt like I was walking in a funeral procession. Because what did I do? So I go in, I walk, and I walk, and I get into the library. And I just stand there, and Blitz comes behind me, like nudges me, goes sit down next to him. So Michael says to me, I want, do you want to keep it, you want to be the bookkeeper for my basketball team, for the varsity team? I'm going to pay you $20 a game. 
$20 to me back then was really like $200. I'm like, what? I was like, I don't know how to keep the score. He's like, don't worry about it. And he's rubbing my leg at that time. But all I could see is the $20 on the table. Because $20 is going to, I'm going to be a hero in my house. And wow. then he takes out a wad of, he, he takes out a wad of cash on a wad that I'd never, I didn't even know that much money existed in the whole world. How old were you at this he time? Did, I was 11. Okay. And he takes out a wad of cash and he peels off $200. He goes, I'm going to pay you for the first 10 games and he puts it on the table. Oh, oh my, my God. gosh. <laughs> oh my God. He's like, I'm going to pay you for the first 10 games. And down the rabbit hole I go. I have never seen, I, nobody in this world in the history of this planet has ever grabbed money so fast. And then what happens, I take the money and I run out of there and I don't go back. I'm like, screw this guy. I go home, I run, <laughs> I run like I'm, I'm, I'm like Usain Bolt. This is the best house. day ever. This is, this is, I'm I mean, dead. all my dreams have come true. I mean, going back to what you just said, you know, 20 bucks felt like yeah. 200. So 200 must've felt like 2000 or 20,000 or whatever. A million, a million percent. I'm the conquering hero. I run home. Filthy face, filthy clothes. I don't care. I am the conquering hero. I show up to my mother. My sister, Stephanie, looks at me with disdain. He says, I'm better than her. My mother, of course, takes the money. I'm going to hold this for you. She's not holding it for me. She's going to go buy her cigarettes and Pepsi because that's her addiction. She'd rather buy cigarettes than buy her kids' food, which is fine. I don't know better. I'm 11. I'm the conquering hero. Doesn't ask any questions. But I, I offer up this. Ma, I got a job. And my chest is pumping. <laughs> Excuse me. And she goes, yeah. And I tell her what my job is. She goes, good. I'm proud of you. But I don't go back to that job short time later I hear a knock on the door I didn't have a bedroom I slept on the army cot by the front door knock on the door I open the door there's Blitz where you been Blitz is the director of basketball at the short from one that's the one that leaves the side door open Bluetooth sent his pimp looking for me I'm 11 years old I'm terrified he says where you been I haven't been feeling well. He says, well, you can't take somebody's money like that and not show up. You can go to jail for that. Now I'm scared out of my life. My mother comes by. What's going on here? So Blitz is like, we hired him. He got to put some money. He has to work. And then Blitz hands my mother a couple hundred bucks. That's all he had to do. My mother don't even ask questions. My mother goes, when does he have to be there? Blitz goes, he has to be there tonight. My mother goes, he will be there. Doesn't ask any more questions. Now I know my internal radar, my alarms are going off. I do not want to be there. She doesn't hear me. She don't care. She drags me by my ear down the block to show up on one. Takes me to the library. Blue sitting there. My mother leaves. Blitz is standing at the door. The door closes the door to the library. And that's the first time that Michael Blue Sexton is. Man, um, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, it, it, we could go down the tangent of, you know, your mother turning a blind eye because of her own 
you know, inefficiencies, mental health issues, et cetera, you sensing in your gut that you didn't want to go back, you know, probably because you felt in your spirit, that was probably something in your spirit saying, Hey, listen, this is danger, danger, danger. Don't, don't go back kind of a situation, you know? And then I, I just, when I hear stories like this, um, I just, I marvel. It's so blitz, you know, let's just talk about him for a second. This guy knows what's happening, knows what blue trick is doing yet goes to somebody's house to find out where they're at to pay off. They're just using money, money to bribe everyone, money to grease the wheels, but pay off your mom and get you to this predator. How, I, I just don't understand how somebody can, can do that. And still at any, in any form, look themselves in the mirror at any point in their life past that point. I, I, I just am not wired I, that way. I, I agree with you 100%. Blitz was Luchik's main secure of boys for decades. As a matter of fact, when Michael Blutick later on in life opened up the scores, New York, the top gentleman's club in the world, the liquor license and the club was under Blitz's name. Blitz made millions of dollars because of Michael. And the reason my, Michael trusted Blitz was because Blitz kept the pipeline of boys open to Blutick. As a matter of fact, once that pipeline, that shorefront started drying up, which was decades later, they wound up opening an after-school program at a public school in New York City. Oh my so, gosh! I mean, and then and then yeah. the and then the terror continues. It continues, you know. Uh, you know, the thing that always haunts me is shorefront was aware of it, Sean. UJA. The organization that owns Shorefront, that owns Shorefront, people went to them directly and said, this man is a serial child rapist pedophile. Do something about it. My sister Stephanie, when she got older, opened an investigation, went to the police, went to the FBI, opened an investigation. Bluetooth fought his way out of it. He fought his way out of it. The story is insane. Okay. Now, for those that don't know the name, just just tell us since all of this happened, you know what what is he known for? He's actually a pretty well known individual um, now, but you know, just to tell us what what has become of him okay. since. Well, he okay, it's kind of vast, so I'm going to give you a clip note version. He opened up Scores New York, which was the, at the time the largest and most profitable gentlemen's club in the world. It was called Scores? Scores. S-C-O-R-E-S. Scores, New York. And it was a topless dance club, you know, like a strip bar, basically? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Gentleman's Club, where all the celeb, every celebrity you name went there. there. Howard Stern was there every day doing his radio show there sometimes. But then what Michael Bluetooth did, he perpetrated the largest insurance scam in American history. He stole $440 million from a company called National Heritage Life Insurance Company of Florida. So this piece of garbage went from raping children, stealing their, stealing their lives, basically, to going and stealing elderly people's life insurance and their life savings. So he ran the gauntlet of crime. He wound up being 13 years in prison. He went undercover as an FBI informant um, to catch the mob who was who had infiltrated scores. But here's a little caveat that I'm going to reveal on your show for the first time, Sean. You ready? Yes. I worked as an FBI informant to catch him first. 
A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> you worked as an informant to catch Blue Trick first? This is how it worked out. I had gotten so sick of him raping children, I reached out to the FBI. And what happened How old was were you when you did the, this? How old were you when you decided? In my, in my 20s. Okay. I reached, out, I reached out to the FBI. I worked undercover. My, my, my undercover name was Point Guard. That was my code name. I worked out. I went, I went undercover. They asked me to wear a body, uh, body wire. I said, there's no way I can wear a body wire because he's so paranoid. Because he knew that he was, getting, he was going down for the, the insurance scam. So they said to me, would you wear it? This is back in the day when they had beepers. Remember beepers? Yes. Or cell phones? Yes. Would you wear a beeper that looks just like yours? I'll never know the difference. My handles were FBI Special Agent Jack Horse, K-A-R-S-T, and Special Agent William Reddy, a piece of garbage. I'm calling you guys out right now on national, national radio. Both you pieces of trash. Those are my, those are my handlers. Worked with them undercover. Got them hundreds, if not thousands of pages of notes on Michael Blutrick admitting that he's a pedophile. Once I got him to admit all that, they used all that to get Michael Blutrick to, to flip him so he was going undercover and catch the mob. Once they got him to flip, they told me to go scratch my butt and kick me to the curb. They told me, don't ever call us again. Basically leaving me out in the street to get killed. But guess what, guys? I'm stronger than that and couldn't get me. So here I am standing up on top of the mountain again. Wow. Wow. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, anybody out there that doesn't believe what I just said, Google the Orlando, Orlando Sentinel and type in Jack Carson's name. FBI agent shredded all his notes that I gave him on pedophilia. Because what happened was when they called him to testify, conveniently, Special Agent Jack Carson of the FBI shredded all his notes. You know why? Because the FBI didn't want to, they didn't want to be known to be harboring a pedophile. I personally believe, and I'm saying this on national radio, I personally believe he got paid off by Michael Bucci, who stole $440 million. Hold on, Sean. You ready for this? Out of the $440 million, only $260 million was recovered. Where's the other $180? That other $180 million is probably sitting in the Channel Islands right now, which doesn't have financial treaties with America. So Michael Blutcher still has $180 million of stolen money that the FBI is okay with him having. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is, this is so, you were basically the linchpin to create one of the most significant undercover busts on record, you know, because I know that's, 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 but then, then this gets even worse for you. Because in reading what happened, you know, since then, like all of the pedophilia stuff has actually, you know, kind of been swept under the rug. This guy is out on national TV. This blue trick guy is out on national TV being somewhat celebrated almost as a hero because he was the informant that helped to take down the mob. That's right. What happened was, so the FBI who had promised me a new life, a new house, a new everything, basically told me to go F myself, excuse my language. I had nothing. Like, I really counted on them just to start my life over. I hit the streets. I got into a, a bad life. I wound up going to prison for five years. Came out of prison homeless. Got a job, got my life together, met my wife. Got everything together. Opened a, a small restaurant. I don't, I don't, I don't run the streets no more. 
Then one day I'm sitting home and a friend of mine called like, yo, turn on 60 Minutes right now. I'm like, why? Not that I, I like 60 Minutes, but why? He's like, urgent. Like, just turn it on. And I turned it on. And Sean, you ever see the things in the movies where everything around you just freezes? Yes. And whatever you're looking at. Everything yeah, slows like down and it's like you're yes, like you're moving yes, through bro, yes. time differently. Yes, yes, it's like a matrix moment, man. And I was like, Oh my God, there's Michael Blutrick and Anderson Cooper is talking to this guy like he's some kind of hero. And how long had and it I'm been like, since you'd had any interaction or even like, cause you, you, like your life went down a different path. You had this, you're in your twenties and at least 20, at least 20 years. So 20 well, years, this guy had been in your rearview mirror as much as he could. Million percent, million percent. But this is where the story starts to get really good. I have a physical reaction to this, but that physical reaction clicked something in my head. And I said to myself, Oh, hell no. Hell no. I didn't even know he had a book out. I didn't know he was out of prison. I thought at that moment, Sean, and I swear to you on my children, I said, I'm going to stop this man now. I'm going to stop him. I don't know what I got to do, but I'm going to get the word out that this pedophile is not going to live this life. He's not, he's not going to do this. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea how I was going to do it. How I was going to spread the word, but there's no way he's going to be portrayed like this. And I said, don't they vet these people? Don't they know what he's done? And then what happened? See, God works in funny ways. Yes, he does. A couple months, couple months later, man, I read the paper. I've always been an avid reader. I'm reading the paper, the New York Post, and I, I see this article about the CVA, Child Victims Act of New York. I don't even know what that is, but it catches my eye. And I start reading it. Have you ever been raped or molested or sexually assaulted as a child in New York, no matter when it happens, you can sue. They lifted the statute of limitations. It could have happened 50 years ago. It didn't matter. I'm like, wait a second. They're actually going to hold institutions responsible? I'm like, Shawfront knew what happened to me. I know they knew because my sister went there. I knew that. I know they knew because other people went to the UJA. Matter of fact, I'm, I can't reveal names because of my case, but there were substantial people in the community. And when I say substantial, I'm not talking about like criminals or parents. I'm talking about pillars of society went to the UJA, right? Went to the UJA, and the next day, goons from the UJA showed up at this, at this person's house and told this person, "You got 48 hours to leave New York, or you're never going to leave anywhere." This person packed their stuff and left New York because they were terrified. Not blue trick. The UJA sent people to this guy's house. Okay? That's what it says. That's how powerful this organization is. This this reminds me so much of, of like, you, you must have been feeling all kinds of feels with the whole Epstein case. Because I feel 100%. like th th this feels very similar to that. People in power, cover-up, hiding, money, influence, power, kids... You know, all that kind of stuff. You 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 must have been feeling all kinds of feels. Sure, man. You have you just hit it on the head, man. And the thing is, I told my wife about my criminal past, but I never told her this crazy Michigash. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you sit down and say, Listen, I was raped by my basketball coach and Andrew Cuomo was his law partner, Donald Trump was his business partner. Scores. How do you integrate this into your marriage? Yeah. How do you tell your wife that I'm about to become Don Quixote chasing windows? Because my <laughs> wife, 
you, you get what I'm saying? Man? No, I do. I, it's, a, it's a hard position. It's a, it's not something you, you, you know, you just bring up over coffee one morning, you know, it's, yeah, it's so a like hard. We're sitting down having, yeah. We're not having croissants over breakfast and say, babe, by the way, I'm going to go chase a pedophile down for the next few years. <laughs> you know, you know, but my wife, God bless her. Amazing, strong, strong woman. She looked right at me. She said, baby, whatever you got to do, I got your back. Oh. She's been riding this through the storms. Through the, I mean, I've had some dark days through this, man. I mean, dark days. Hey, when but you, when is, you listen, I know what it's like to have a spouse like that because I got one too. And you feel like you can go out and conquer the damn world when you got a woman that's in your back pocket, 100% loyal to you and supporting you and, and, and cheering you on. So I, I get that. You probably couldn't have done it or wouldn't have done it without that level of support. Oh, absolutely. I would have given up a long time ago, man. A long time ago. I mean, you have to understand the plays that are involved that are still powerful, right? Yeah. This dude, his, his, his former law partner is the governor of New York right now. His former business partner, who he ran a boxing company with, New Contenders Inc., was Donald Trump. Not Junior Trump, the real Donald Trump. Okay? His former other law partner is the top appellate judge, Robert Miller, in King County, where I live. These are his former partners in, in law. So these are powerful players currently as we speak. Must have felt like for you a little bit like David and Goliath. You're David and this guy's Goliath, but yet you, you, you're going to be the one that wins. Sean, I say bring it on. Man. I lived in five, I did five years in prison. I lived with serial killers. So I, this, this don't scare me. This is me slaying my <laughs> demons. Bring it on. But the thing that the thing that bothers me the most is, do you know how many times at 11, 12 years old, I was in Blue Chick's office and I met Andrew Cuomo? I, you know, and then I say to myself, how many other kids did Blue Chick introduce Cuomo to as his nephew? Blue Chick has no nephews. He would introduce Andrew, this is my nephew Jason. I guarantee you there was at least 10 other kids that came up there that were his nephew. Cuomo had to know. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess here's where I, I find myself now, given given this story. I mean, based on what you've been through and what you've weathered and what you're coming up against and what you're trying to do, I guess the question that I have is how did you maintain your sanity through all of this? How did you find your faith? How did you find, you know, the ability to take what could have been just another example of abject poverty. I mean, cause you could have gone down the drugs route. You could be in prison for life. You could have killed somebody. Lord knows you had enough reason to want to try to kill somebody. If you could, you know, like how, how did you end up the peaceful grandfather that loves his kids and grandkids that you are now given what you weathered? That's going to be the question that people want to know because that's at the center of hope. Wow. That's a great question for me. It's, um, I always knew I was better than my current situation. Mm, that's you know, powerful. When I was in, when I was in prison, and I was around all these people, right, all these men. I never walked around like I was better than any man, but I knew I was better than that place. And like I just said, that I gave myself chills because I never forget where I came from. And you know, if you said to me, Jason, what is the lowest point of your life? I could pinpoint it right now. I was in prison and I was talking to my son who was 12 at the time. And he said, Daddy, I'm lonely and I have no friends. That broke me, Sean. I literally got on my knees and started to cry. Because my actions, I didn't realize the collateral damage I was doing to the people around me because of my greed and arrogance. 
And I didn't realize that, you know, Bluetooth, while he was grooming me, was also training me and teaching me. Because I had become, I was the objectified, I had become the objectified. And I knew inside my soul and my heart I was better than that. So when I left prison, the only thing I had left was hope. And I had to, and I couldn't just live on hope anymore. I had to turn that hope, I had to take that hope seed, plant it, and let it grow into a great forest of reality. Did that make it a reality? Did that come with faith? Mm -hmm. So how did you find faith? Through the actions of people in prison. Mm. I knew, I knew, I'm I'm in prison, and I have nothing. I have nothing. All my my friends were out of out of state, so they could only do so much. My family kind of abandoned me, but they had their own lives. But the men inside took, you know, the good men took me under their wing. There was a guy named Larry Robinson in prison, right? He had been down 22 years already. He fed me every day for two years. And you know what Larry wanted in return? He just wanted to know what was going on on Avenue and East 15th Street. Because he hadn't seen Avenue and East 15th Street in 22 years. So he wanted to know what was happening on the street. He wanted to visualize it when he lied down that night. I was his eyes and ears to the streets because I had been there a couple of years prior. He didn't know about cell phones or cars that start with a push of a button. So he would feed me and I would tell him stories. That, that gave me faith. It gave me hope. And then we would sit down and we would just talk about life. And that instilled a new faith in me, a new, 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 new hope in me, that there are good people who do make mistakes. And by the way, Larry did 24 years for a murder he didn't commit. And then Larry, I would say to Larry, how do you not lose your mind? How do you not hang it up, man? And Larry looked right at me and never, never hesitated. He said, you know why? Because I know that day is coming. I said, what do you mean? Because that day is coming where they're going to open that game. I'm going to walk out. And you know what? That day came and he walked out. Oh, my gosh. Have you, have you connected with him since? Does he know what he did Absolutely. for you? Absolutely. When I got off the train coming from Fishville Correctional Facility and I walked into Grand Central, Larry and I danced at Grand Central Station. My first meal was at Larry's mother's house. <laughs> oh, why am I not surprised? So did he, he got out earlier than you did. He got out in November. I got out the following July. July 2nd, 2014, I came home. That's my Independence Day. And every July 2nd, I sit, that's my day of reflection. I take, I take that day to reflect back on how far I've come, how far I'm going to go, the people I've met in the last seven years or eight years you know, whatever period of time it's been. And I don't do nothing that day, but just reflect on my life, on my faith, on, on what I could do to help people. You know, I, I try to, you know, this is my motto now. Instead of, instead of robbing the steel, and I'm just trying to hit the streets and heal. No steel, try to heal. And that's how I live. No steel, I'm trying to heal. No steel, I'm trying to heal. I, I, I see a clothing brand or, you know, I see some shirts or I see, I see some gear, some merchandise or something like that. I, I think yeah, that is no awesome. Yeah, no steel, no healing. That's it, man, because it's the truth. I don't want to hurt nobody. Just because I was hurt doesn't give me a right to hurt the next person. You know, my thing is this. This world's coming out of a zombie apocalypse. And what this world really needs right now is some intimacy. A hug, a touch, a look, a smile. A laugh, something. People are going to be very vulnerable right now, and and there's going to be people out there that are going to take advantage of that. And then there's going to be people like me that are going to take it. They're going to stand by the people that are vulnerable. And say, yo, back up, leave them alone. 
because I'm going to see it coming from five blocks away because I used to be that person that would have taken advantage. No more. Now we all stand together and we build this world the right way. Yeah, I think that I think that comes with time. I think it comes with perspective. I think the, the I think the key that you said there was self reflection. I think if you practice self reflection, you are going to evolve and grow as a person because you're analyzing why you made decisions, how you made decisions, what was good about those decisions, what you want to change about those, and you're learning. You're learning about how to do life. You're learning about how to do life within yourself, within your personality, within your spirit, within your body. And uh, I think you evolve and grow as a result of that. So, you know, what, what is the current mission? I, I do know that you've got litigation um, now that you've found the CVA, which is the Child Victim Act out of, out of New yeah. York. So you've filed suit against the perpetrator, Blue Trick, and you've also filed suit. No. Ag- oh, okay, go ahead. No, I didn't. I, I, I didn't sorry, I didn't go after Blue Trick yet. Um, but I went after, I went after, see, for me, I think the enablers, are just as guilty as the perpetrator. If not more. If you, yeah. A hundred percent. If the UJA and Shorefront Y and the JCC, you knew what this man was doing and you knew it and you allowed this to go on, not for a year, not for five years, but we're talking about multiple decades. Shame on you. Shame on you. I would have never became a criminal. I would have never done any of the things I did and I blame you wholeheartedly. I know I own my mistakes, but you took away any opportunity by allowing that man to do what he did to me and hundreds of others. So I, I'm going after the enablers, but they allowed him to do what he did. So yeah, without enablers, he would not have been able to do what he did. A hundred percent, a million percent. So I'm going after the UJA, the JCC, Shorefront. They have to, I want my day in court. That's what I want. I want to be able to sit on that stand and they could paint me any way they want. He's an ex-con. He did this. He's, and I'll own it because I've already owned it in court. That doesn't, that doesn't frighten me. That's not going to break me. But I want them to say, why did they allow this to go on for decades? Because I'm coming with an army. It's not me alone anymore. I'm not that little 11-year-old boy alone in that library anymore. I'm coming with an army. And I'm coming with witnesses that will back my word. Because you know what? I'm not the man I used to be. I'm the man I am today. And my word means something. So UJA, JCC, Shorefront, you bring it because you're ready now. And you know what? I'm not. And when I say I'm not coming alone, let me tell you something. When I started my lawsuit, a lot of people told me, just leave it alone, leave it alone. But I couldn't. So as of right now, I was able to get seven other people to join the lawsuit because they were Bluetooth victims as well. So Shorefront, you got to fight in front of you. UJA, JCC, you and your high power lawyers, you got to fight in front of you. Don't worry about Jason Bresky. You got all, all those other lawsuits. And mind you, this is what Cuomo did. When he extended the, uh, the, the CVA, he only extended it up until August 13th of this year. So there's going to be more victims coming forward before August 13th, I guarantee you. Because Bluetooth molested or raped hundreds of children. So we got some things in the works now that are going to publicize this before August 13th. And I guarantee you that number doubles or triples before August 13th. Well, I, I wish you much success in that. I mean, I think the, like you, you're very powerful. I'm not the man I used to be. I'm the man I am today. And my word means something. That was a powerful rise up, take control of your life and of your circumstance and move forward kind of declaration. I think words matter. And that was awesome. 
I just got to tell you, the transformation that you've made, kudos to you, Jason, because you had every reason and every excuse available to wither, to wilt, to become nothing because of what was done to you and what happened to you. But you're choosing to not do that. You're choosing to rise. You're choosing to fight. You're choosing to persevere. You're choosing the harder road. You're choosing to hold people accountable. You're choosing to help others in the same circumstance that you've been in and to, and to set a precedent and an example for what is right and what is wrong and what is appropriate and what isn't. And I, I just want to celebrate you for that. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Jen, for having me, for giving me an opportunity to have a voice because, you know, in America, every year, 800,000 new people are become sex assault victims and not all of them become survivors. So we need platforms like yours to give us an opportunity to become survivors. Because unless you speak up, you just stay a victim. So I just want to thank you and your wife for this opportunity. Really, seriously, thank you so much. And as I grow and as I get the word out there, you know, I'd like to stay in touch with both of you guys. And you join my team and I, you know, and we can build something together. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and uh, one question that I have for you, because somebody's going to be listening right now that is has gone through what you're going through or is going through what you're going through to some degree. And I just want you to have an opportunity almost as though you're speaking to your younger self, you know, like what would you say to somebody that's wrestling with some of the same, you know, the weight of, of some of the same trauma that you experienced? How, how would you encourage them in this moment to move forward, given what they're dealing with and what they've been through? Well, first, you're not alone. I know you feel alone. I know you probably feel that you have no, you can't trust anybody. Um, you can definitely trust me. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Clubhouse. And even though I'm a stranger, strangers are just friends that haven't met yet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's organizations out there that will help you. There's Lighthouse Project, which I'm part of. You know, Samantha Foster is a blazing sun in the darkest of skies. You know, go on lighthouseproject.org, reach out to her. Anything you say will definitely be kept confidential. She will definitely point you in the right direction. There's a RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, that's an excellent organization. Write, 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 write. Put your feelings to paper. It could be a catharsis. It can make you feel better. Go to the local cop. Go to the local social worker. The most important thing is love yourself first. Always love yourself first. Go to the local church. If you can't go there, you know, tell somebody. If you feel overwhelmed, go to the local hospital. But reach out to somebody. We have 7 billion people on this planet. You're not alone. So good. Is there is there an is there an eight hundred number or hotline that people can call that you're aware of for sexual abuse victims? Off the top of my head, no. But um, what I could do is, if they reach out to me on Instagram, I can uh, I'll put it on. I'll find one and put it on my Instagram account today. Awesome. Well, I, out of all the organizations that I've worked with, I, I would definitely highly recommend the Life the Lighthouse Project. The the Lighthouse Project because Light I'm sorry LighthouseProject.org. They are just an amazing team. I can't even stress Samantha Foster enough. And like she goes to bed thinking about this. She wakes up thinking about this. They're going to be worldwide within the next year. I mean, it's just an amazing organization. I can't plug them enough. I mean, when I, since I've gotten back into this, 
of helping people uh, with sex trafficking, sexual assault victims. I've been offered board positions by organizations. I've turned them down. I spoke to Samantha one time, and I knew I found the organization I'm going to work with the rest of my life. Well, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your message. I mean, I feel like I, like everything in my spirit says you got to write a book. There's got to be a movie. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the boogeyman of Brighton Beach. I'm thinking about, you know, David and Goliath, you know, the gladiator type story. I, I like all kinds of stuff is turning in my head when you're sharing this. I'm sure when the dust settles, when everything is over, you know, you'll have some time to reflect on that. Maybe you just want to move on with your life at that point. But, um, I, you know, I feel like the, the message that you're sharing right now, your, your spirit, your, your confidence, who you've become as a result of this process, who God has helped you become, you're just a warrior. And, uh, you, you know, I support you. I applaud you. I think what you're doing is valuable. I think it's, a, it's an incredible mission, and I hope you slay all the giants that you are going after, my friend. I hope you slay them all. Well, thank you so much. Your words really resonate with me. Um, they soothe me and they heal me. So thank you for your, for your time, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Glad to have you on the show. All right, Jen, I don't know about you, but I took away some pretty incredible nuggets of hope out of that interview mm-hmm. with uh, Jason Bresco. What'd you think? I think maybe I heard stuff I shouldn't have heard. <laughs> yeah. I felt like, like we were undercover. Like we, he was an, an, uh, Letting us know stuff that we shouldn't have heard. I mean, this is this. We actually got a scoop the very first time, never before heard. You know, he's yeah. revealing certain aspects of his case, what's going on. I don't think we should know that. I think we need to hide under he, our desk. <laughs> you think you think someone's coming for you? Yeah. Well, I'll keep you protected. Okay. I'll keep you safe. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not going to worry about that. But you know, I did want to share with you, like. This quote from him mm-hmm. hit me hard, all right? It, yes. it, just, it just got me right in the feels. He said, I always knew I was better than my current situation. I always knew I was better than my current yeah. circumstances. This, yeah. It's just this belief that, you know, kind of like when you think about Ula, we're in Ula, but when you think about Ula, it's not, it's not who you are. Mm-hmm. It's just where you are right, right now in this right. moment. You know, like don't, don't absorb that. Don't think you're less than if you're not in the ideal circumstances, not because you're not good enough it just means this is where you are not right. who you are and i think that that really really resonated um strongly with me and i thought it was a great great um example of you know kind of having a right mindset mm-hmm. you know even though you're struggling even though you're in a situation where you feel lack mm-hmm. you know i always knew i was better than my current situation that's why he rose higher that's why yeah. he went the good path instead of going down the bad path right so a rabbit hole yeah i thought that was awesome so that was a really really good uh nugget of hope that i took away from our interview with him and um oh here's another one <laughs> strangers are just friends you haven't met yet i like that i do like that i've I, heard that before i still believe in stranger danger though what? <laughs> stranger danger. Uh-oh, stranger. I don't know that person. They're danger. Yeah, I Yeah. I, I do. Well, you, you know, listening to a story like his, I can understand why you would say stranger danger, <laughs> right? Yeah. The boogeyman of Brighton Beach, like I stranger know. danger. Like, I don't, you that's know, and here's freaky. this guy that's supposed to be, you know, a guy that helps kids. Hey, I'm just leaving the side door open so you can come in and play basketball. No, he's right. leaving the side door open so you can come in and be preyed upon. Yeah, stranger 
Stranger danger. danger. Okay, I'm with you on that one yeah. now. I'm I'm not going to talk to anybody when I go outside. <laughs> I'm going to put on a, a mask, even though they're not required in California, and I'm not going to talk to nobody. Okay. Stranger danger. You with me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's uh let's let's do this. Let's make a commitment. Okay. I felt rejuvenated, recharged, inspired, and I feel better about life after that interview. So let's do this again tomorrow. Let's have another Hope Radio Pod. Well, not tomorrow, next week. Yes, one a week. One episode <laughs> a week. That's what we're going to commit to. That's what to. you promised. Yes, that's what we're going to commit to. All right, let's do it again. Okay.